0: Hello, and welcome to this edition of Two Worlds, One Country, the show where we explore the things that divide us, especially the rural-urban divide, and talk to wonderful guests who are doing something about it. I'm your host, Anthony Flaccovento, speaking to you here from the studios of WEHC and W I S E Y S F M, fm and also on podcasts. And today on Two Worlds, One Country... We have a very interesting guest with a very interesting and effective strategy to share with you all, Luke Mayville. Luke is the founder and the executive director of Reclaim Idaho. And over the next 30 minutes, you're going to hear a little bit about Reclaim Idaho and the remarkable successes they've had in a very brief history, uh, successes that should give progressives and liberals hope in a time where it sometimes feels like the world's going down the toilet. So we're really excited to have Luke with us on our show today. Welcome, Luke.
1: It's great to be here, Anthony. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, yeah. My pleasure. So I want to start with a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? What kind of influences you had? That kind of thing, a bit about your family?
1: Well, I grew up in the northern Idaho panhandle, uh, in a town called Sandpoint, actually outside of town um, in a, in in Sagal, Idaho. Um, my family moved there when I was very young, around seven years old. And prior to that, I lived most of my life in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, but I I mainly grew up in North Idaho. From the time I was very young, my parents split up. I was raised by my mother, single parent household. And most of my childhood uh she worked various jobs but uh Mm -hmm. most of most of the time it was as a restaurant server i spent a whole lot of my childhood you know skateboarding around also trying to be a good student for the most part and i really didn't have much uh, involvement in politics at all for for my early childhood up until i was probably around 15 or 16 or something i tended to view politics more through the lens of sort of evangelical conservative conservatism, conservatism um, because that was some of the culture that i had grown up in your mom and including really your mom know,
0: or excuse me including well, your mom?
1: originally um, before my parents broke up and i didn't really know my father after that but we had lived in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and we'd actually lived in a like a mega church community. We we mm. lived on the campus for a while of Oral Roberts University. Oh my
0: goodness. Wow. And
1: that and that was because my father was uh attempting to become a preacher, a mega church preacher, a, a televangelist type uh, figure was was sort of his dream at the time. Yeah. So so I was deep in the mega church world. At the time of 9-11, I was still very much, you know, of, of a mind that I, I remember, uh, I was invited by my English teacher to give a speech, um, to the entire school assembly based on an essay essay I had written. And it was very, you know, patriotic speech. I remember being very inspired by George W. Bush's, um, remarks on the rubble with the, uh, with the megaphone. Right. <clears throat> and, um. But what happened, a fundamental turning point for me came when the Iraq War came about. And it was right at a time when I was starting to really read more deeply into U.S. history and just think critically about our past. And I think what happened, in retrospect, what happened to me was just a profound kind of alienation from my community, because it was very much a community at that time where you were seen as unpatriotic if, if you didn't fully support the war and and you know your loyalty was to your country was questioned and so that was that that shaped me profoundly and then i think uh, and and what what i what i immediately did i I didn't get involved in politics but just getting involved in debates and things and what i did when i eventually went off to college and then went through a bunch of different routes and eventually landed in graduate school studying political philosophy uh, and I, I think what I was basically doing was channeling a lot of deep interest in politics. I was channeling it in a very intellectual way, and just trying to really dig in and understand politics as best I could. And and the route I took was to study like great old books, and I, I so I I studied you know Western political philosophy from Aristotle and Plato on through the American founding, and um, eventually wrote a. PhD on the political philosophy of John Adams which I then turned wow. into a book that wow. I published specifically on um John Adams's fear of oligarchy and his views about economic inequality and the relation of inequality to politics and it's it's become clear to me looking back <laughs> that I think I deeply always wanted to be involved in politics and actually doing something about these issues and both from the time of first getting that sense of alienation from the Iraq war but then also looking back on the economics that I grew up with and a sense that it just wasn't right that so many people are just kind of scraping by and you know living off of credit cards and Yeah it sounds like uh, both
0: your your own experience and the education where you focused all the way through to your PhD were were great preparation for the work you do now which we're going to talk about but I I've got to take Take host liberty here and ask it. Anywhere in those years of studying philosophers, did you study the Monty Python philosopher bit that starts with "Immanuel Kant was a real pissant"? <laughs> I think
1: I, I do remember that getting passed around. I think uh, in my graduate program, yes, I never it was... I just could never Kant. I took an entire course on the Kant's critique of pure reason. I. I forgot all of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I never had a mind for that kind of philosophy.
0: Yeah, I I didn't either. But that's it's perfect if you don't have a mind for philosophy to get your philosophy through Monty Python. So, (laughs) (laughs) not to trivialize it. So, so you had this tremendous preparation coming out of of your own experience first and foremost, and then the the people you studied and the your own deep investigation in writing the book. You shifted your worldview. Uh, in the process, and so now you're presumably early mid 20s. Um, that's still, I think, a few years before you started Reclaim Idaho. What what did you do at that point prior to Reclaim?
1: Well, I finished uh, a Ph.D., and at that point I was on the East Coast, and I um, let's see, that would have been it would have been in my late 20s. Um, I did some postdoc. Work where I was uh, <clears throat> teaching basically as a professor, a lecturer uh, at a few different places. I was at American University in mm-hmm. Washington, D.C., and then and then I spent a number of years and it was just a phenomenal experience at Columbia in New York teaching the core curriculum. So I taught wow. um, every sophomore at Columbia uh, studies great works of political philosophy, starting with Plato and going all the way through to the 20th century. And that brought me to my early 30s was right around the time when the 2016 election happened, when a whole lot of people all across the country were really upping their political engagement. Um, Or
0: starting it in many cases. Yeah,
1: or starting it for the very first time. In my case, a really important bridge before launching Reclaim Idaho was that in the years when I was teaching at Columbia, I also, and I, we don't have to get into this, but along the way, I, I became Catholic. And I um, I was just drawn into this incredible parish community with just an, an, a very inspiring mentor to me, a, a priest who really challenged me to get involved in the social justice work of the church. And having gone having known basically nothing about organizing or anything, but having a real passion for try for wanting to get more involved, I think he he saw that in me and he just made me the chair of the uh social action committee.
0: Oh wow. <clears throat> and this and is I, where they, this is when you were in Columbia. So it was yeah. somewhere in New York. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I was at a, a local parish um, called Blessed Sacrament Church in New York, and hmm. and and I just tried to get, uh, I just tried to, you know, started really small and just tried to, over a couple years, you know, one project at a time, one event at a time, just tried to get more and more involved and scale up things, so um, that work as a chair of a social action committee really got me, uh, you know, it was a really a kind of crash course in starting to learn how to organize. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Then became really important when I went back to Idaho.
0: So because we have only 30 minutes, I do want to shift gears. And so I'm going to say that Reclaim Idaho is not unique, but it's the best example that I know of something that some folks call direct democracy. So why don't you briefly tell us the strategy? What is the essence of what you do? And then we're going to talk about some of your successes.
1: Well, um, the essence of what we do is we're, we're all about trying to make our state government work for everybody, not just those with the most money and political influence. And the way we do that is by Bringing a whole lot more people directly into the political process, so we're we're trying to build an active, engaged citizenry where thousands more people all across the state are really using their political power and pushing for policies that meet the interests and needs of of working people, of of all people. And 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 where direct democracy comes in is that we found that the ballot initiative, whatever the merits of any one individual initiative, the ballot initiative itself, the process is an extraordinarily powerful tool for getting people organized. Um, And we kind of in some ways we stumbled into it. Back when we first started in 2017, we decided to spearhead a ballot initiative campaign to expand Medicaid. And there are these extremely rigid rules in Idaho where in order to get an initiative on the ballot, You've got to get a huge number of signatures statewide, and then you also have to get a lot of signatures from 18 different legislative districts across Mm. the state. And that made a lot of people Mm -hmm. think it was basically impossible to use the process, Mm -hmm. and they didn't think it was possible. Well, what we eventually found is they're almost right. It's extraordinarily difficult unless you have like millions and millions of dollars to dump into it. But if you can pull it off, if you can build the type of organization to get something on the ballot you've done something even more powerful than get something on the ballot because along the way you've built a statewide organization of engaged people who are capable who are willing inspired who are and who have that capacity to actually go out into their communities and advocate for something and to explain an, an issue sometimes a complicated issue of taxation or healthcare policy or what have you and that's and that's what we've done. We um, we succeeded in getting Medicaid expansion on the ballot, and then a coalition formed, and we ended up winning with sixty one percent of the vote. We've had success really using the initiative process to force you know the government to move on on increasing funding for public schools, and then along the way we've defended the initiative process from attacks by the state legislature. Yeah, Um, let let me pause you.
0: Let me pause you for just a minute. So so just explain the ballot initiative itself. First of all, I I was telling you before we got on the air that I did some very quick and probably not very good research into it. And it seems that roughly half the states in the country, twenty-six by my count, allow for some form of initiative. It's not necessarily a ballot initiative. Sometimes it's a veto of legislation, but that means that basically half the states in the country do the citizens can't do this but the yep. if those if those numbers are more or less accurate for those that can like Idaho it seems like it's there and yet the state legislatures don't really the the, the elected leaders don't really like it they want to be the ones making the laws they don't want the citizens to make laws through this process is that Your experience?
1: That's right. So as a vestige of the progressive movement, early 20th century, there are all these states, especially concentrated in the West, that that passed these constitutional amendments. And Idaho was in 1912. And ever since then we've had in our constitution a right of to put things on the ballot and to have popular votes on policies. Yes, the, the legislature is very much against the process. At various times throughout Idaho history, they've tried to dramatically restrict the process more than ever in recent years. And and especially since we actually picked up the tool and started using since it. Since you're doing
0: something with it, they're really pissed.
1: Um, yeah. Right, and 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 it does. It is very clear that it is a question of power, and they prefer to be able to concentrate that power in their own hands. The ballot initiative sometimes gets a bad rap, and in some times, in some cases, for good reason. Like people point to California, and they point to there are you know from time to time initiatives that are basically driven by special interest groups, mm-hmm. and they're really top down, and they're and they're put you know you hire army of an army of paid signature gatherers and. There's not really much grassroots about it. And that happens in other states as well. Um, So we're not like, we're not out saying every ballot initiative is always a good thing. But what we will, what we do firmly believe is that the initiative process, well used. The initiative process used as a as a grassroots mechanism for empowering citizens is a very good thing. And it, it very much democratizes a state's political system when people actually get involved directly in their own government through the initiative process. And I'll just mention briefly that, yeah, ever since we started using it, the legislature has been attacking it. And the real pro- probably biggest kind of moment for that was... When they eventually succeeded in passing a law that would make initiatives basically impossible, and we sued them, <laughs> and and um, the state Supreme Court uh, took our side and ruled unanimously and struck down that law. Fantastic. And, and actually strengthened the initiative process wow. by, for the first time, declaring that it's a fundamental right. And, and so now it, would, it will be really difficult for future legislators to intervene with it, oh, to that's intervene great. And, They, they and block it anyway. They
0: kicked a hornet's nest. So you said that in the, the first major one was your Medicaid expansion initiative. The state legislature, like a lot of conservative state legislatures, had not taken advantage of the Affordable Care Act's full funding, then 90 percent funding to expand Medicaid. And they weren't going to, I'm sure, from mm-hmm. the no. composition. Ultimately, first you have to get it on the ballot, which you did, and then you have to get people to vote the way you want them to. You said 61% voted. So that means there was a whole lot of people that normally do not identify as liberals or progressives or Democrats that voted in favor of Medicaid expansion in Idaho, right? Because surely there's 61% of the voting population would not call themselves liberals or Democrats, I'm
1: guessing. Based on a rough calculation, we don't, we can't know for sure, but to, to get to 61%, you have to win about half of the Republican. Wow. And then, I mean, and, and then it depends on just how much you drive up the numbers among Democrats and independents, but you've got to win. You've got to overwhelmingly win independents and Democrats, and then you've got to win about half of the Republicans to get that big of a supermajority. super it, One of the things that we're most proud of. Is that we also won the majority in most of the counties, in almost every county, actually. So and it wasn't was... it
0: wasn't an urban thing. It wasn't that of Sioux Falls or a few places. Just, you just just really concentrated the votes there. You did it across the state.
1: Yeah, and we believe that, I mean, because that, that was extraordinary because Medicaid expansion has also appeared on the ballot in a number of other red states. The pattern in most, in just about, in, in every other state really, Maine was a little bit of an exception, but Maine is also more of a purple state. But in all of the other red states, generally it won in the more urban areas and nowhere else. So generally it won in a small minority of the counties. Idaho was this exception where it only lost in a few counties and it won in some of it won in the five most rural counties, actually, and then and then rural counties across the state and we believe that the reason is because we didn't over rely on things like paid advertising. Mm-hmm. We really did get people we, we did we the coalition came together and put money into it and we had some good paid advertising going in the final month. But what with the the most significant thing is that we actually had people organized in communities in their own, you know, trusted people in communities actually speaking on behalf of the cause
0: and i assume most of them were volunteers that you had a small number of paid staff who motivated Mm. trained organized but these were by and large volunteers
1: that's right and generally the way we've conceived of it is we're doing distributed organizing where we're challenging people in communities to step up and lead a given campaign themselves and, and really organize in their own community and we have a paid staff it's it ranges at any given time from about three people to sometimes more like six people but but the role of the paid organizers is essentially to be a resource to this tremendous network of volunteers all across the state and we're also fortunate that we've been able to we have some incredible organ central organizers who you know work full-time on this and it's really a profession they're they're very talented and just excellent at what they do, but th- that's that's I've found that to be a very important thing to get right. The combination of a small staff, paid organizers who are very talented and committed, together with a vast network of volunteers, and those two working together in the right way can can just be the most the most powerful combination.
0: I mean, it, it brings to mind a couple of things. First of all, when I think about how my own congressional campaign, but Congressional campaigns generally and even state campaigns might have that many staff people, three, five, six, eight staff Mm -hmm. people. You're, You're putting a lot of money for the better part of a year into something that even if you win, which you often don't, at best gives you one more voice that might be the swing vote but probably won't be, whereas you have this tiny little staff, relatively speaking, that is getting incredible legislation passed across the state that's really something
1: and it, well it, yeah and I, and I should give a shout out part of part of what makes us really tick and is that we also have an a, a very committed volunteer board that just like moves heaven and earth with the time that they have to commit themselves to it and that's that's been amazing as well but um and in another key part of it is that you have volunteers across the state but they're not just kind of a mass of people they are organized at best they're organized into teams and they Mm -hmm. have local leaders who really step up and take on that role of you know really coordinating their local volunteer team and that's what we found that's absolutely essential and that's that's what we mean when we call it we say distributed organizing I
0: remember Van Jones, at one point I was reading something of his, and he says, what we, and this was really, I think, maybe even pre-Trump years, but he said, what we have is top-down bipartisanship, where a few kind of old guard Democrats and, and moderate Republicans might get together behind closed doors and work out deals. He said, what we need is bottom-up bipartisanship, and that's you guys. I mean, you're that's really extraordinary. So we're, we're running low on time, unfortunately. Um, I, I would love for you to say very briefly, you, you passed Medicaid expansion, an extraordinary accomplishment. Then you went after state funding, and without getting into too much of the detail, While you didn't get an initiative passed, you succeeded in getting enough feet to the fire of the legislature that they kind of did you one better. Is that right?
1: That's right. Under a kind of fear of our initiative passing, they called an extraordinary special session and increased funding for education by, in fact, more than we were proposing. The downside is that they passed a tax policy that made the tax system slightly less fair than it Hmm. already was, where we were trying to make it more fair by restoring some taxes on um, corporations and the highest earners in the state. So that was a downside on the tax side. But on the education funding side, it was a major breakthrough. Yeah.
0: And 400 million bucks in a state. What's the population of Idaho?
1: About 1.8 million, I believe. So yeah, 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 it goes a long way. And it it translates into what it looks like is it could be over $6,000 raise for every teacher. Fantastic. Um, at least Prom. on average, which, yeah. which could make a real difference. That's great. So,
0: so to wrap up, tell us about your your current initiative, and um, a little bit about the initiative itself, and then we'll we'll wrap up with some final comments.
1: Well, I should say we spent a couple months of the, of the last year, uh, just after having some re- making some real progress on public education, fighting back against school vouchers, and we really had a mass kind of grassroots <laughs> lobbying effort. And we, we were able, together with, in coalition with a number of different education groups, we were able to block, you know, this privatization movement from past, enacting school vouchers that would siphon money out of public schools in order to pay for private school tuition. So that was something that we were very happy that we were able to play a role in blocking that. Hmm. We've now launched a major initiative that could turn out to be our biggest campaign yet, uh, and it's called the Open Primaries Initiative. And it's essentially, if you're familiar with what Alaska enacted in 2020 through a ballot initiative, uh, we're going for a very similar reform. It would be, it would restructure the primary elections so that the pro- everyone votes in the same primary and it's an open nonpartisan primary. The, it doesn't matter what party you're for, you just show up and you vote for your favorite candidate. Excuse me, Luke, then- is this
0: for... State elections only, or
1: nearly all elections except for president. Oh my! Uh, so it's also it is for U.S. Senate and for for U.S. House, and then it's state elections. But it's it's not municipal or school board or anything sure, like that because sure. those aren't currently uh, partisan elections. Right, right. But it's every partisan election other than president. Oh my goodness! Um, and and um, so it would create an open nonpartisan primary. The top four candidates, the top four vote getters from the primary, regardless of party, go to the general election. And then, in the general election, uh, you have ranked choice voting. So voters don't just pick their first choice; they all, they pick their first choice, second choice, third choice, fourth choice. If they choose to do so, they can just pick one choice, but right. but they have a choice to they 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 have the freedom to to do first through fourth choices and then what happens is that when the votes are counted the first choice votes are all counted and if anyone gets to 50 percent, they win yeah but if no one gets over 50 percent, then you eliminate the last place candidate and then anyone who voted for that last place candidate their vote gets transferred to their second choice and then and once you've transferred those votes if someone if that bumps someone over 50 percent, they win and if it doesn't, you just keep doing round, right. Right? Right. rounds four of, rounds of that process. So the goal of ranked choice voting, the most fundamental goal is to make sure that the winner has over 50% of the vote, and and actually, and more, more importantly, that because they have that support, they really do represent a broad section of the population, because one of the most serious problems and one of the most serious sources of dysfunction in our state and in many states across the country is that we're electing representatives who really only represent a very, very narrow faction. Right. Uh, Often a very narrow partisan faction, because all you have to do is eke out in a in a one party state. All you have to do is eke out a victory in a primary where hardly anyone votes. Right. And once you eke out that victory, then you uh, then you sail to victory in the general election. So we end up with. Uh, a political system that doesn't really represent the basic needs and interests of the majority of the population, uh, and we we think if we by enacting this type of reform, we're actually we're we're going at the root of a lot of the injustices that we've been addressing in other ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going at the root of why the legislature hasn't. Been willing to address healthcare access and public schools and other things. Right. Uh, so stay tuned, and we'll we'll see what we can do in this uh, coming year. It's
0: very exciting. That would be a radical change, and I would say for the better for sure. And really, it it is starting to catch on. It was ranked choice voting and similar things were very obscure until just a few years ago. And with Alaska's passage, and I think some. Uh, some municipalities, I've forgotten all, but it's beginning to catch on, this idea that it's so many people say, I don't like the Democrats or the Republicans. I don't like the choice I've got. But now opening that choice up, it's terrific. Well, Luke, this has been just terrific. I've been thrilled on this edition of Two Worlds, One Country to have as my guest Luke Mayville, who is the founder and director of Reclaim Idaho. And we've heard a little bit about both their extraordinary results in passing very progressive legislation in a very conservative state. But even more importantly, as Luke has pointed out, the process they use, a truly bottom-up community-based process, is simply bringing a whole lot more people into the political process and giving them a sense that they can actually have some power. And in this time when so many of us feel disempowered, what a great thing. So Luke, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Anthony. Till next time.
0: Absolutely.